In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Vicki Benzing joins us today on Money Tales. Vicki enjoyed an extremely successful career in tech and then decided to pursue an encore career as a stunt pilot, where she performs heart-stopping moves in air shows across the country. In both careers, Vicki was often one of the only leading women, which led to some interesting money stories that she shares today. Vicki earned a PhD in chemistry and did a postdoc, which led her into the tech world, starting at Tektronix and ending at Novellus. While finishing up her PhD, a colleague invited Vicky to go skydiving, which ultimately led to her love affair with being high up in the sky. She later learned to fly, and one thing led to another, and Vicky started buying planes and learning stunts. Hey, this is Cammy. Here are three key money tales conversation topics Vicky brings to life during our conversation today. First, the importance of taking a profit, especially for those within the money stock options. Second, the power of talking about money when growing a business. And third, what seems risky often isn't when you have enough practice and experience. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, onto our conversation with Vicki Benzing. Welcome, Vicki Benzing, to Money Tales. Thank you. Great to be here. Would you provide us a brief overview of your life story with two or three pivotal moments that really impacted you, making you the person you are today? I was born in Watsonville, California on the Central Coast. We moved to the Silicon Valley when I was a youngster, and I grew up there and went to school at Davis, graduate school in Berkeley. I got my PhD in chemistry. I ended up doing a postdoc at the University of Oregon. I didn't think I'd go into industry. I figured I'd go into academics, but I fell in love with the state of Oregon and ended up taking a job at Tektronix up in Portland. I worked up there for a while and crossed the river to Camas, Washington, worked for Sharp Microelectronics, and ultimately I ended up in Novellus where I finished my career. Retired from Novellus a few years back and I started flying air shows. Well, I started competing in contests and then flying air shows and that led to air racing. So here I am, a race and air show pilot after working in Silicon Valley as an executive for many years. Who knows what's next? Great overview. Why don't we go back in time, if you could share a little bit about your upbringing and what led you to your different passions from chemistry to flying planes. But importantly, maybe you can touch on how your family interacted with money, talked about money, didn't talk about money. I grew up in a very middle-class family. My father actually came from a very poor family. 
she was one of six children with a single mother who had to work to support the family because his father left the family when he was about eight years old. My parents were always very careful with money. In fact, to this day, my mother won't talk on the phone because talking on phones costs money. She <laughs> just hope you don't hear this mom. <laughs> we always knew that we were very lucky. My father joined the Navy out of high school. He got the GI Bill, and he was the first person in his family to go to college. In fact, the only one of his siblings, I think, that ended up going to college. And he was studying electrical engineering, got a job in electrical engineering. So he made pretty good money. My parents never forgot growing up during the Depression and not really having any money. We as kids weren't given things unless it was Christmas or your birthday. And my birthday happens to be on Christmas. So if I wanted masks and flippers, I got them in December to be used in June. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? (laughs) (laughs) You really had to plan ahead. It's certainly different now. We had to work for anything we wanted. I pulled weed. I did get an allowance, but I had chores to do for that allowance. I think that that was good. It taught me a lot about money. My parents raised me to not spend more than I had. So I learned to not go into debt. I got a job in high school. I wrapped lollipops for $2.25 an hour, and I saved a bunch of money, spending money. So my parents paid for my college. I was fortunate, but I didn't have a lot of money. So there wasn't money for things that I wanted to do, like going to concerts. That money I had to earn through jobs. It's good to have some time in your life where you have to work hard for money because it teaches you the value of money. It teaches you the value of hard work. So that's how I was raised. You asked earlier about the pivotal moments in my life. Learning to fly was one of them. That was, of course, preceded by learning to skydive. The next one was joining Novellus in the Silicon Valley, but I joined it in Portland. And then leaving Novellus to go fly. Those are three big transitional points in my life that had a big impact on the quality and just my life in general. When did you start the skydiving and then plane flying portion of your life? I was in graduate school at Berkeley. I had just finished my orals. Chemistry at Berkeley, all the physical chemists work in the basement and all the organic chemists work in the upper floors. And my friend guy came down from his inorganic lab, came down to the basement and asked me if I want to go skydiving. And I was like, yeah, but I don't have any money this month because we were on a stipend. We got paid to go to graduate school. The next month, we went skydiving, and I absolutely fell in love with skydiving. It was a great thing for me. Mostly what it did for me was it helped my self-confidence. The fact that I could be utterly terrified and overcoming the fear was an amazing thing. I was around the planes all the time, and I realized that I really, really wanted to fly. And My uncle was a pilot, and he was an air show and, and air race pilot. My parents had friends who were pilots, and one of my dad's friends let me learn to fly in his airplane for the cost of the fuel and the instructor. I would drive once a week from Berkeley down to Watsonville and and take my flying lessons. I took one lesson in the morning and in the afternoon, and I got my pilot's license. Flying really became a passion in my life. I think it's so important to have something that you're passionate about in your life. It makes your life so enriched. Husbands may come and go, but Flying to say. <laughs> so that was a big change in my life, and that's when I started flying. I had already passed my orals to my PhD, or else maybe I would have had a career in flying, but I ended up having a career in Silicon Valley that was probably much more lucrative career than, than any career I would have had in flying, and it enabled me to fly probably more planes than I would have been able to fly had I had a flying career. 
Tell us more about that, Vicki, because flying, while it is your passion, it's not an inexpensive passion. So how did that play a role in the decisions you were making when you were leaving graduate school? It's actually surprisingly not that expensive to fly if it's something you want to do. I was a postdoc. I got paid $17,000 a year. That was my first job out of graduate school with my PhD. I bought a small airplane and took out a loan on it. Actually, the guy who sold it to me took payments on it, and I paid it off. I bought the airplane before I ever bought a house. I paid $8,000 for it. Almost half of your earnings. Yeah, but I paid it off over a few years. At that time, I lived in a house that cost me $250 a month. (laughs) So I could afford it. It was just a matter of what you sacrifice to do it. It burns about five gallons an hour, and gas at the time was less than a dollar an hour. And nowadays, the same airplane would maybe cost you $20,000, less than a car. Gas is maybe five bucks an hour, so it costs you 25 bucks an hour in fuel to fly it. It's surprisingly cheaper than you think. But you came from this background of no debt, don't have debt, don't spend more than you have. Do you put the spreadsheet together and make sure all the lines? Yep, the spreadsheet with the interest and the monthly payments, and I knew I could do it. That's what I did, yeah. And I did, there was another time that I borrowed money from my parents to buy a house after I got my first job. You remember back when the interest rates were like 12%. (laughs) I did the same thing, spreadsheet, borrowed the money from my parents, paid them back every penny with interest. Vicki, when you look back on those purchases now, what did it feel like at the time? Buying your first plane, buying your first home? Well, the plane was all about the passion for flying. It was sort of my soul. So if I wanted to pursue it, I needed to have a plane because it becomes too expensive to rent. The house was a scary time because I had gotten married to my first husband and we bought this house. He got laid off at Tectronics. And I remember it was like a nightmare. I remember waking up in the next morning thinking, oh, the nightmare's real. It's not, it didn't just go away. We really couldn't afford the house on one income. Fortunately, he got rehired by another division within the company. We had gone to work for Tektronix. Tektronix was downsizing. This was my first job out of school. I was a postdoc. I took this job at Tektronix. They were 16,000 people, I think, when we hired on, and we ended up at 6,000 people. They announced they were going to sell my division, and I left the company and went to Sharp Microelectronics, which actually turned out to be a fortunate thing because the general manager of the division I worked for left and went to be the CEO of Novellus. He couldn't hire out of Tektronix because he had an agreement when he left Tektronix not to poach from Tektronix. Since I went to Sharp, he could call me up and bring me over to Novellus. And he really became an advocate for me within the company and accelerated my career growth within Novellus. I started out as a field process engineer, which is a reasonably low individual contributor level in the company. I ended up running customer satisfaction, which owned all of field service and field process and tech pubs and training, huge portion of the company. I grew significantly in the company. I had so many different jobs. I learned so much. How long were you there? I was there from 95 to 2012 when I retired completely. And the whole time, are you passionate about flying? Is work funding your passions or are you loving work at the time? What's driving you? I had some time to fly on the weekends, but work was all consuming, especially as I moved up in the company. I became a vice president of the company and I 
didn't really have time for my other passion, the flying and the skydiving. At some point, I realized I had to get myself back, round myself out with the other things that I really love to do. That's why I stepped down on a vice president role to an individual, individual contributor role. I, I worked on IP for the company for a few years while my stock vested and then I retired from the company to go pursue my passion. Before we get further into your passion, tell us about those years when you had your head down, you're climbing the ladder of the company. It sounds like very aggressively. What was that like for you from a money perspective? This was all new to me, getting stock options. And back in those days, before they stopped handing out stock options and started handing out restricted stock, I learned all about the value of stock options. And I learned the quote, never be ashamed to take a profit. So to sell the stock option when you could, take that profit and invest it somewhere else and try to hit a high. I learned so much about money in those years. Fortunately for me, the company, when you get to the executive level, paid for a financial advisor for you. That was really good. I've worked for the same company for over 20 years. They talked to you about how to invest your money. I'm a technical person. I really don't know very much about money outside of the very simple. And why should I be an expert, really? So it's good to have an expert to help to guide you through the various financial instruments that can maximize what you've saved. I do remember standing on the platform of a train station in Japan with one of my colleagues when we realized how much our options were going to be worth as the stock was running up. It was staggering. I think we're very lucky. We worked very hard for it, but I also think we're lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Nowadays, certainly you can go from rags to riches in Silicon Valley, but it's a little harder because the companies now have to expense stock options. They don't hand them out to the lowest levels. So where you used to see at the very lowest levels, the operators in Intel and places like that become millionaires, you don't see that anymore. They don't go as far down the management chain, sadly. And that all happened after Enron. You said a great line that I want you to talk a little bit more about. Never be ashamed to take a profit. Would you bring that to life for us? What does that mean? That's not my line. That was another vice president who coined that. But it meant if you have a gain, especially in a risky investment like a stock option, sell it at the opportunity that you have. Don't try to play it to its peak value. A lot of folks, the big run up to 2000 held on to the stock option. And, you know, after the crash, they were worth just a fraction of what they were before. Human behavior, we don't want to miss out or someone did better. If you're an executive, you can get locked out at any time. I remember traveling, I think it was in Taiwan or Japan. We had planned to sell some stock and all of a sudden we got locked up because the company was going to make an announcement and we couldn't sell. And, and then the stock dropped. And we ended up having to hold on to it. And that's a good example of, because especially when you get in situations where you can't, then at least you can take the profit and invest it elsewhere where you can move the money around. You mentioned at a point you decided you needed to get more balance in your life and you needed to spend more time with your passion. And I'm just curious, was it always a goal of yours throughout your career to stop working at one point so that you could fly full time? No, not really. Although... A couple of years into my career at Novellus, I applied to NASA to be an astronaut. That would be like the perfect job for me. And I got invited down for the week-long interview and physical exam. And the way they do the selection process, 
they take all the applicants and they rank order them. And in my year, they brought in 120 people to interview in groups of 20, and I was in the top group of 20. I flunked for a vision defect that I didn't know I had. I couldn't get through the medical for that, but they did select seven out of my group of 20 to be astronauts. And I think I would have been unique among the candidates and likely would have been selected. There just weren't many women. There weren't many PhDs. A number of things that made me unique. I had more flight time than anybody else in the group. But I wasn't selected, and there were times in my career where I really did want to follow my passion, but I enjoyed my career quite a bit. We worked at the cutting edge of technology. It was really interesting. I worked with really smart people, and we solved really difficult problems. That was fun in and of itself. There was a lot of grind. Toward the end of my career, I was traveling three weeks out of four, mostly to Asia. It was quite a grind, but the fun part was the technology. And getting to work with the customers, working with the smart people. Maybe another pivotal moment was when I took a, an aerobatic ride with Wayne Henley in his extra. <laughs> I was in my mid-40s. Wayne said to me, this is going to cost you some money, isn't it? <laughs> and sure enough, it did. I went out and bought an extra aerobatic-capable airplane within a month of taking that flight. That's rekindled this passion that I had for aerobatics that I had when I was just learning to fly. and. I started doing contests, and I realized that if I didn't make a change at that point in my life, that I wouldn't be able to do that because it was pretty physically demanding. And if I waited too long, then it would be really tough. Aerobatics is physically demanding? Yeah, the G-force. Fortunately, I had made a lot of money. My husband was still working. He was an executive in the house. We still had an income coming in, and it was a good time for me to go make a change in my life. So I stepped down from the vice president position to be an individual contributor, and I worked in intellectual property until my stock vested. And then coincidentally, we did this merger acquisition with Lamb Research, and I retired and my husband also retired. He was on a four-year wind down from the data to acquisition. We retired at the same time, but I was maybe four years ahead of him in terms of retiring. It was really hard because even though I wanted to make this change in my life and start flying, which I did, I started flying competition aerobatics. Within two years, I started flying air shows and then later the air racing. At first, when everybody needed to talk to me and my phone was always ringing, my voicemail, my email were full, everybody needed me for everything. All of a sudden, nobody needs you. That was really hard. To some degree, how you perceive yourself has something to do with what you do. And until I built that second career, perception of myself was like, wow, I went from this really high place. I'm sure that I'm not alone in that. I think everybody has to go through that to some degree. Fortunately, I had the flying. So I just put myself into the flying and I built that, started doing the air shows, started getting sponsors. And I started getting paid. Been sort of like my little pet project to make that work as a business. Interesting, challenging thing to figure out what my value is, how much to charge. <laughs> I have my own little business now, which is fun and different and new challenge in life. What would your advice be to yourself if you could go back in time? Because it's such an interesting point. It's hard to step away. You're in such an important role in your career. You have this amazing passion, but it's got different gratification elements to it. What would your advice be? What would you do differently, if anything? I don't really know. 
I did it in one of the best possible ways, but I maybe wasn't quite prepared for the significance of it. I will say one thing, though. When I retired, everybody wanted me to be on some nonprofit board. So you could have been busy. (laughs) I did a few of those for a little while. And then I realized it really is different when people are volunteers versus people are your employees. and You can just tell them what to do. (laughs) And nobody really wants to work. Advice I'd be is to learn to say no. It's not always easy to say no. Although during my work, we had a fellow in our company whose nickname was Dr. No, because he had figured out how to say no to customers who always ask you for more stuff. It's not the thing you want to be known for, but it's actually pretty helpful not to say yes to things you can't do. Was it important to you then to find a way to generate money from this second career? What's really valuable to me is to know that it's self-supporting. I don't have to explain to my husband why I'm spending so much money flying or whatever. It gives me a sense of independence to make it self-sufficient. It's not a hobby anymore. It is a business. It's fun to watch it grow because it has grown year after year in terms of revenue. And that's really been fun and rewarding that I could create something that's doing that. I'm sure I could do it at a much bigger scale, but I just don't want to invest that much energy. You see other airshow performers that have big teams and buses and stuff that travel all over the country. This is the level that I want to do it to. This is what works for me and keeps my marriage sound. You mentioned before that you were challenged by figuring out how to charge for your value. Very challenging. Because of this reluctance to talk about money with other people, I didn't really want to ask other people what they charge. It took me a long time to be able to ask other people what they charge and get a sense of what the air shows are paying performers. I maybe undervalued myself for a while. Then again, I really didn't want to lose some of the shows because I charged too much. I've raised my prices year over year in accordance with my perceived value as a performer as one of the only like two female performers in the United States and the fact that I've flown at the premier air shows in the U.S. I have some intrinsic value for air shows and I've been able to raise my prices for that. But it's hard to raise prices for customers. And we found that in our business as well, right? Customers don't want to pay more. Is there a lot of negotiation that happens? Honestly, there's not usually. I invite them to negotiate if they don't feel that one of the terms of my contract, including the price, is what they would like. They generally don't, interestingly. How about the sponsors? What are those conversations like? I have a primary sponsor. We started out with a fairly modest sponsorship, and we've grown it over the years. It brings in a monthly check, which is good. So if I'm not flying any shows, I still get a monthly check to help pay the bills for the airplane. I've negotiated over the years increases in sponsorship amount. I've drawn hard lines about how much square footage you get on my airplane based on how much he's sponsoring me. You're going to have to pay a lot more if you want it on the wings, for example. (laughs) The relationship has become a friendship as well. It's not so bad. And I think it's fair. That's a good feeling. Negotiation is such an important skill that we all need to get comfortable with. But we do it every day in our lives, right? Exactly. That's right. And I was lucky. My company sent me to a couple different things on negotiation. 
dealing with difficult people and negotiating win-wins because negotiation isn't a win-win. Each person gets something. You just have to figure out what each person wants, what they value. Negotiation isn't that hard. How many air shows are you flying each year on average? And what's the craziest stunt you've ever done? Generally between 14 and 18 shows a year, although this year fewer because of the pandemic. Flying six shows this year, which is actually kind of nice considering we're in the middle of this house remodel. The craziest stunt. Honestly, nothing is really crazy because you practice it a thousand times to make sure you can do it before you ever put it into your air show sequence. So even though it looks crazy, it's not. I can tumble the airplane. I can make it look like it's doing things that airplanes shouldn't do. But you learn to do it and you learn to recover it and make it safe because it does no one good if something bad happens like you crash. But you got to practice it. You can't simulate it. You practice, practice, practice. Yes. That's how you get good at anything. It sort of goes along with the hard work. You can make up for not being as talented in an area by working a lot harder. It really helps to have talent, but you can work really hard and that makes up for a lot. I had this boss who said, winners do what the losers are unwilling to do. Not unable, unwilling. Everybody can go out and practice five days a week, but how many people are willing to do that? We moved now to Monterey, so my hair is much closer, but when I lived up in Silicon Valley, it took me at least 35 minutes to drive to the airport and then get the airplane out, full practice, bring the airplane back, fuel it, clean it, and drive home. And that would be a minimum of three hours, and I did that every day. Especially when you're first starting this jing up, you feel physically ill getting through that till you get your jeet on. And learning new things and scaring yourself, it's the things that the winners do that losers unwilling to do. I love that lesson. I love how it can relate to all things money and all things in life. I worked for some really smart guys over the years and learned a lot of stuff from them. This particular gentleman, he wanted his salespeople to want stuff. Houses, cars, so that they would work really hard to earn those things. I thought that was pretty interesting. But he was a smart guy. You've shared some fun wisdom along the way in this conversation. What's one piece of money wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? Money isn't everything. Happiness is everything. (laughs) And if money can bring you experiences or relationships or I don't want to say stuff because stuff doesn't really make you happy. But if money can help enhance your happiness, then that's the value in it. The pursuit of money isn't everything. There's a balance. You have to strike that balance between having adequate money and having adequate life. Better, more than adequate life, I think. Your response makes me wonder, what's the best thing that you've ever used money to do or to have? To fly. (laughs) That's a pretty easy one. To pursue your passions. It would be nice to say to help people, but I really haven't gotten there in my life. But there's a lot of people who go to those air shows who are enjoying watching you do what you do. Yeah, I do think that there's something to that. I interact with a lot of young people. I get letters years from young people I've met who said, I watched you fly. I met you. You signed this card for me and you had this major impact on my life. I became a pilot or changed my life. 
So maybe in that way, it's a little bit of giving back and maybe in being able to be a role model, especially for young women who sometimes lack role models to see that they can achieve their dreams. I think that's quite valuable. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? Well, we sort of talk about money every day with my husband and I because we're furnishing our house. But a real money conversation will probably come at the end of the year, during the end of the year wrap up and figuring out what we might need to do tax-wise and settling the books on my business. We'll be meeting again with our financial advisor at the first of the year. So that'll be a real conversation around money. Sound like good money conversations to have. We wish you and your husband the best of luck with them. And we thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure to learn more about you and your life, everything that you're doing up in the sky and with money. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's fun to talk about some of the things I've learned. Thanks, Vicki. Sandy, what was your biggest money insight from this conversation with Vicki? I appreciated how Vicki shared a lot about her experience in the tech world and needing to make decisions about stock options. She talked about the importance of taking a profit when the stock options were in the money, meaning that the value of the stock greatly exceeded the price to exercise the stock options. She talked about how because she was high up in the company, she was subject to trading windows, which is common for officers, high-level executives, and board members, because these people tend to know insider information. Companies will often disallow them from selling stock unless the trading window is open. And the trading window usually opens after an earnings release when all of the private information about the company is made public. That can make it trickier for high-level folks within the organization to be able to sell their stock. I really appreciated how Vicki shared all that with us. How about you, Cammie? She was vulnerable with us, sharing how uncomfortable she felt having money conversations. Specifically, she talked about wanting to know what others charged for the stunt pilot work, but she didn't want to ask about it. That really held her back until she got that comfort level, and she did. And I'm so proud of her for doing that and getting in there and rolling up her sleeves and having those tough conversations, which sounded like they really weren't that difficult once she got going. And I think that's the point. It can be scary, but you're really just advocating for yourself and asking questions that should be very fair. She just showed some curiosity, which I thought was great. I'm so glad you brought that up because it resonates with something else Vicky said later in the conversation, which was, I asked her what the craziest stunt was that she did. And she said, well, there's nothing that's too crazy when you've practiced enough and you have enough experience. That was a great lesson for all of us, especially as it relates to talking about money. Because at first blush, it might seem crazy, it might seem risky, it might seem scary. But if we keep practicing and we build up our experience, it becomes common. That craziness, the riskiness goes away. I was so grateful that Vicki was willing to get outside of her comfort zone and have these really cool conversations with us. I loved learning about her life and about how she's approached it and particularly how she's using money to feed her passion and allowing that passion to play into her money story. Such an important message to hear from Vicki. What a great conversation she shared with us. To our listeners, thanks for joining us once again. If you liked this episode, we really appreciate it if you would share it with others. You can always email us at podcasts at 
See you next time on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.